0: We're back here in the courtroom of current events with Peter's proffer. We've got another frequently asked question coming at you today. We hope you keep the questions coming at Tragos Law on all social media. PeterTragos at GreekLaw.com is the email. Keep sending them in, and we're going to keep answering them. got another Frequently Asked Question podcast going on today, and it's going to deal with undercover cops. Um, we have people email in. We've got cases that deal with undercover, undercover cops all the time, and it's a pretty interesting um, area, and there's a lot of rules and a lot of history behind it. So I've got George Tragos in here, um, our in-house criminal defense expert who's dealt with it for 40 years. He was an assistant U.S. attorney, assistant state attorney, dealt with these people on both sides of the fence, um, used them as witnesses, and then now picks apart their investigations as a criminal defense attorney. So we're going to start by uh, explaining what exactly an undercover cop is.
1: Well, an undercover cop, in the simplest way, is someone that is in, first of all, plain clothes, Disguising his identity, making sure people don't know he's a police officer or law enforcement. He goes into a situation acting like another criminal so that he can get information, so that he can buy drugs, so he can buy something illegal. But he keeps his identity secret, and he is separate and apart from law enforcement at that time. Driving in a normal vehicle,
0: um, not any identification on him. Uh, you know, usually just as much as they can, they're doing whatever they can to blend in. A lot of them grow beards or mustaches or disguise their normal appearance so they don't look like a clean-cut law enforcement well, officer. Well, Peter,
1: actually, they sometimes do have identification, but it's false identification.
0: I meant police identification. Right. They're not wearing their badge. They don't have their gun. They don't have their Correct. taser. They don't have anything that would identify them as a police officer is what I meant. Um, okay, so let's go back in time and talk a little bit about the history of of undercover cops, where they came from, how they got here? Well, it's, it's interesting
1: because undercover cops really started in the late 1800s, and the French were the first ones recorded to have an undercover cop. And they were in the it, uh, the uh, political realm where they were looking at political enemies of the government. And then very soon after that, there was a British department that was established called the Irish Republican and the Irish Republican service was, again, to go after the IRA. Because at the time, even back in the 1800s, the IRA was, were bombing uh, locations in, in London, and they had undercover officers trying to infiltrate the IRA. Then the first American was in 1906, where the New York City Police Department established a squad called the Italian Squad. And it's interesting to note that most of these are situations where they target a particular ethnic group, We have the Irish Republican group, and then we have a group that goes after the Italian squad for the poor Italian neighborhoods. And then, of course, we have the FBI, which was established in 1908. So now we have traditional undercover work being used all over the country, and that's when it really starts.
0: Okay, and what are the normal assignments that these undercover cops get assigned to? Because they're obviously not picking people up for DUIs normally or things like that.
1: Well... Then you have to look at whether or not we're talking about a state undercover, local undercover, or federal undercover. Usually the state or local cops don't have the resources for long-term investigations. They don't have the resources for the body bugs. They don't have the resources to have somebody undercover for two or three years. That usually falls to the federal government. The state or local police are normally going out and finding drug dealers. They're on the side of the road buying or selling drugs. I recently had a case where the police officers, the undercover officers, were in an unmarked vehicle and they were buying drugs. They bought the drugs, but they didn't arrest the seller right then. They got the seller's name and drove away. Months later, so that they wouldn't ruin the undercover operation because they were buying a lot of drugs in that neighborhood, they put out a warrant for the name of the person who sold them the drugs. Well, it turns out that person has stole somebody's identity and they arrested the wrong person because they weren't... Arresting them right on that spot. So undercover work is not an exact science. Sometimes they make big mistakes because they don't have the traditional law enforcement uh, agents around them in order to arrest the people right when it happens. Okay, so what
0: other types of crimes do these undercover agents or law enforcement officers at the state level normally investigate? Because isn't it normally gangs that they'll infiltrate, human trafficking, Drugs, even some white-collar cases, or some of the—I know we've had cases where people that sell illegal drugs out of a storefront. Sometimes undercover cops will go in there and become normal buyers to investigate kind of the bigger supplier of those types of drugs um, uh, situations.
1: Well, I can give you an example. Uh, Sheriff Rice was one of the first undercover investigators in Pinellas County. And what he did is he actually went and they rented a store. They put a fake wall up, they put a double mirror, and they shot video and they bought stolen items for almost six months. That was a tremendously successful undercover uh, operation because people even came in there and sold them drugs in that store. And they had it all on videotape. So they can do drugs, they can do stolen property. Then you move to the bigger and more complex investigations where they go undercover in a white-collar case, where they might even establish a bank, and that bank may deal in money laundering. And they have drug dealers coming there giving them millions of dollars to launder for them, and it's really a U.S. bank. We had that situation several times in this country. I, I even prosecuted one where for two years we had a bank operating in the United States theoretically where our dealers went down to South America, got the cash, and brought it back to deposit in the bank in the United States for the South American drug dealers. Then they decided to have a wedding up here, and they invited all the drug dealers up for a wedding for one of our bank employees. And when all the drug dealers came up here, they arrested them all.
0: Okay, so that kind of brings us into what, where are the lines drawn? What can an undercover cop do versus what can't they do? Um, we'll start with what they are allowed to do in these types of investigations.
1: Well, they have very detailed rules in most undercover operations. The undercover operation has to be approved by a superior, and they have to submit a budget, so they have to know how much can they spend, and these are the rules. Normally, they allow them, in some cases, to do small crimes, you know, like stealing something small or to possess a small amount of marijuana. But when it gets in the more serious crimes, like murder or hurting somebody, that's where they draw the line and don't let their agents do it. They also restrict sexual contact. And that's a big one because a lot of officers have gotten in trouble because they have had sexual contact during their role as an undercover officer.
0: Okay, so they are allowed to commit crimes, which is always a a question people ask us, but it's more of the crime of they're allowed to buy the drugs from a drug dealer as opposed to they're allowed to use the drugs recreationally with the drug dealer.
1: And they're allowed to lie through their teeth. They can lie about anything, anytime, anywhere anywhere and it's fine, and it's totally acceptable. And, you know, that that brings to another question people
0: always ask is, I thought if I asked somebody if they were a cop, they had to tell me that they're a cop. But that's
1: not actually the case with undercover cops. That's one of the biggest fallacies around, and the cops love it, because they love being asked, and they love saying, no, I'm not a cop, and the person goes, okay, that means you can't be an undercover cop, and the guy just spills his guts.
0: And you'd be surprised how many times we actually hear that on recordings of, of our cases, that they actually do ask whether or not they're a cop, and they... Know or feel like they're getting followed or recorded by the cops, yet they don't realize it's the person that they're you know working with on a daily basis and just in saying that, I realize that there's another thing that we're not allowed to do as citizens record people without their knowledge. That's a felony in Florida, but undercover cops can do that right is there any is there any limit on what they can do to record somebody in an investigation?
1: No, there's a law enforcement exception for the what we call single party recording where only one person. In the conversation, gives the authority to record,
0: and a lot of lay people don't understand that they just play by different rules. So, what you think is okay for you to do is not the same rules that law enforcement officers, especially undercover law enforcement officers, um, uh, have to live and play and play the game by. They have different rules. They can do a lot more than anybody else can do, and it's not illegal. Um, so let's get into that. What exactly, where's the line drawn? What are they not allowed to do? I know you said murder. I know you said uh, dangerous crimes that may hurt somebody else. Uh, you said sexual contact. Is there anything else that they can't do as part of their
1: investigation? Really, there's almost no limit now because they have to convince those people look, I'm a criminal just like you. So they have to act like a criminal, they have to talk like a criminal. And they can't sit around and pussyfoot around, otherwise, you know, they're going to die.
0: Okay, well, let's get to what they can't do in trying to catch a criminal in the act. What are they not actually allowed to do, legally speaking, in what we would call entrapment?
1: Well, they can't force somebody to commit a crime. They can't impress upon them that they have to do this for a particular reason. If they don't do this, they're going to get shot or they're going to get murdered by the boss. They they can't threaten, they can't do any of the things that would make it an involuntary action on the part of the person they're working with. So the crime that's committed has to be one that that person chooses to commit. Okay, so let's start by talking about what the elements of entrapment are. Well, the basic element is that you uh, take over a person's will so that that person doesn't have a decision-maker, doesn't decide on their own, but someone else is actually making that decision for them. Uh, for instance, you call somebody, you ask them to buy drugs, they say no. You call them 15 times in a row, and finally they give in and say, oh, okay, just to get rid of you. Well, that's a classic entrapment, where a person doesn't want to commit the crime, but they're almost forced to because of your persistence.
0: And really, the, the simple elements of entrapment are... Uh, law enforcement officers induce a person to commit a crime. And then number two, the person is absent of a predisposition to commit that crime. So the way that that's shown in a lot of our cases is we'll go back into the defendant's life and show that their entire life leading up to this moment, they were not predisposed to commit this crime. Then law enforcement comes in, puts it into their head, and then they commit the crime. And the way that happens is you know, there's a person that looks at pornography all the time, but never looks at child pornography until law enforcement officers through, you know, websites and technology continue to send them child pornography to their email over and over and over again, 50 times. And finally, they open one up and then boom, they get arrested. Well, you can go back and show maybe they're not predisposed to that. Or other times it can be, um, you know, for drugs, same thing. Somebody that used to be a drug addict is not a drug addict anymore, and then law enforcement continues to try to sell them drugs, sell them drugs, sell them drugs, and eventually they do again, then you might have an entrapment defense because you might be able to show that even though they had committed that crime in the past, that had kind of split their predisposition, and now law enforcement has come and induced them again to commit that crime.
1: There's another possibility, too, is when you have a female undercover officer. that That female undercover officer makes somebody think that they'll have sex with them if they give them drugs. And that's been a classic case of impropriety, and the courts have thrown that out consistently.
0: And, you know, now they're using things like back page ads to also induce people into committing these crimes. And, you know, there's there's going to be some back and forth onto whether that's whether or not that's entrapment, depending on what the person's looking for when they go on back page ads, versus what law enforcement shows up to the meeting spot with. They're looking for an adult, and they show up with a child. If they're looking for you know, prescription drugs and they show up with, you know, illicit drugs or whatever. It's just, it's, it's all becoming a, a technological game here. And I think there's a lot of entrapment going on, but the key is to prove whether or not that person is predisposed to commit that crime without inducement of the law enforcement officers.
1: See, it's not wrong for them just to offer somebody an opportunity to commit a crime. Right. If they search in, if they
0: search, you know, uh, cocaine on Google, where can I buy cocaine? Or if they look, for, you know, I want to have sex with a minor, then obviously if law enforcement uh, presents an opportunity for them to commit that crime, that's fine. But if somebody, you know, puts in, you know, I want to meet somebody to go out on a date, and then they show up with a 14 year old when they thought they were meeting a 25 year old, that's different because the person wasn't necessarily looking for that. Um, So that's something that comes into play a lot of times here. And, you know, that brings us to the next point, which is really important is, a lot of the law enforcement officers that go undercover get into really dangerous situations. So um, why don't you talk about some of the dangers that a undercover law enforcement officer is faced with every day in their investigation? Now, the
1: dangers of the risks really are, are twofold. The first is danger because they are doing an undercover personality. They can't slip up. They have to have the fake name, fake voice, fake language. Everything about them is fake, and it could be that this happens for years. Uh, Donnie Brasco is a really famous undercover uh, individual, and that just happened right here in Newport Ritchie in the Tampa area, where an undercover FBI agent for years is undercover in the mafia. There were 200 prosecutions that came out of his case, but he had to live as a mafia-made man for years. He could have died at any moment or been killed. In fact, the guy that brought him into the mafia, uh, a guy named Sonny Black, brought him in and And he became close friends with Sonny Black. Sonny Black got killed when they found out Donnie was an FBI agent because Sonny vouched for Donnie to come into the mafia. So the one is the physical danger and the stress of keeping up that persona all the time. The second is your family. Here you are one day, you're in the mafia and you're doing all this stuff, and then a couple of days later, you may be at home with your wife and kids. How do you change back and forth from those personalities? And they're finding that it's really tough, and some agents don't. They don't change. It get so ingrained in the mafia lifestyle or the undercover lifestyle that they never make it back to being a normal guy again.
0: And that's kind of a good transition into another thing I want to talk about that I did some research on, which was the psychological testing that undercover law enforcement officers have to go through. So they go through, at least in the the federal level, they go through a lot of psychological testing and learning exactly how to, I guess you could say, switch back and forth or deal with um, living multiple lives so that they don't give a tell in their undercover operation of their normal life, not necessarily even the other way
1: around. I know that agents have to be certified by their agency. They take special courses. Uh, the FBI Academy at Quantico is a place where there are special courses given not just to FBI agents but to DEA agents and other federal agents to make sure they're ready for this undercover operation. A lot of them don't wash out. A lot of them never get certified, so they're never able to do undercover operations.
0: And then I know they get put through a battery of psychological tests when they get out as well before they get kind of reintroduced into the normal world, which goes better in some cases than others. Um, So that's a basic overview of of undercover cops, what they can do, what they can't do, which kind of answers the frequently asked question. We had a big case, which was my first trial as a criminal defense attorney. Um, It was George's case in federal court, and it dealt with all this stuff. So we're going to kind of go through that case. It hits on a lot of topics dealing with undercover officers, what they can do, what they can't, what the government can keep us from asking, what it's like to uh, uh, cross-examine a federal agent in federal court with no discovery, not necessarily knowing what he's going to say. So we're going to go ahead and talk about that now. Um, starting out with, why don't you talk about all the recordings that we got and how we had to deal with the issues with those undercover recordings? Well,
1: terrorism cases, first off, have unlimited budgets and get unlimited resources from the federal government. And they have unlimited undercover agents. In, in our case, the agents, and if we could for a second, we talk about entrapment? Sure. Well, in that case, we have the FBI supplying the money that the client needed to buy the material for the bomb. He didn't have the money, so they got him a job. The job paid him so he could pay for the bombs. And the the job that he got was
0: for an an FBI informant working for the FBI informant, so the FBI actually gave him the money he
1: worked for at the job. Right. On the other end, we have the FBI providing him with the materials for the bomb. So he takes the money from one FBI informant and pays another FBI agent to assemble the bomb for him. They get together. They make the bomb. Of course, it wasn't a real bomb, but it looked like a real bomb. They make that for him. They're recording everything. They have cameras up on top of of light poles recording meetings. They have the way to trace his telephone calls all the way all over the country calling people. And then we have this one FBI agent that is really gets really close to him, and he's the lead undercover agent. And that becomes really significant when we go into the trial and you see how he's protected because of the dangers the FBI believes he's under because this is a terrorism case.
0: Okay, so he's the one that's wearing the body cam most of the time. He's got the microphone on some portion of his body. We're, not, we're still not sure where. And throughout the case, we get all these undercover recordings. We get boxes and boxes and boxes of typed out Um, transcripts of the undercover recordings. And then we find out that they are not transcribed properly or pieces are missing, or there's beginnings or ends to the recording that weren't transcribed. So we file motions with the court to try to get this information. And what does the court tell us?
1: Well, first of all, the court tells us You know, this is a national security case. So the government objects to us getting all of this stuff, objects to us actually getting the recordings to compare to the transcripts, and they go back into a secret room, and the judge listens. The judge finds out we're not getting proper transcripts and orders them to retranscribe the material and give it to us. Because it's a national security case, there's all sorts of secret things that go on that defense lawyers aren't allowed to be part of. Plus, don't forget, Peter, they forgot to turn off the recording once. And well, more than
0: once, but we'll get to that in a second. So one of the really important things that you said is when they go back into that room for the judge to listen to the recordings and make her ruling with the prosecutor and the lead FBI agent, the criminal defense attorneys and the defendant himself are not allowed in that meeting. So we have this entire hearing in, in open court and federal court, and then halfway through, we stop, we get cut off, and they all go back into another room. So everybody leaves except for us, the defense team for the judge and the prosecutor and the FBI agent to actually go see what this evidence is before we can even determine whether or not we as the defense are allowed to listen to it. So that's the first thing that we just get kicked out of so many rulings. We don't even get to argue our point because a lot of times in normal cases, if this was a, a transcript that we had a problem with, we'd listen to it, talk about why this part of the transcript is relevant or important or why we need it. We weren't allowed to make any of those arguments in this case. It's just whatever the judge decides based off what the FBI agent and the prosecutor tell the judge and the judge is put in a tough position because she's got to think about it from both sides. And the judge is actually very fair in our case. Right, We had
1: a good judge willing to take the time to, to read the transcripts.
0: Exactly. So now we can talk about another issue with the recordings is sometimes these FBI agents would forget to turn off the recordings or would forget that the recording was on before the sting operation actually started.
1: Well, In our case, the one big one was, I think it was about 45 minutes, we're sitting listening to all the FBI agents talk in the FBI secret room. And the secret room is a room that is designed so that no one can penetrate it with any kind of outside listening devices. And we get to hear everything that's going on in there, And we find out they say things like, um, we've given the prosecutor her Hollywood moment. And the Hollywood moment was... The Hollywood ending. Yeah, and the the, the Hollywood ending was they actually scripted a video for our client to say at the very end so that they could show it to the jury. And our client said what it is they wanted him to say. And that was the Hollywood
0: ending. And a lot of that we weren't able to even get into at the trial because the court found that a lot of that was top secret information and things like that. We, we asked questions that were as simple as where was the recording device in the vehicle or on the law enforcement officer and we were shut down saying that that was top secret classified information that we were not allowed to know the answer to. So a lot of these cases you're allowed to find this stuff out but when you get into a national security case, there are some scary laws out there that just prevent you from even knowing what the government is doing while they're watching you and following you. And the
1: jury is seeing all this. The jury is seeing that they're objecting and not having to say why they're objecting or why we're not getting stuff or why the jury is not seeing things. And that also goes to testimony during the course of the trial. The undercover agent in this trial, to protect his identity, they built a wall around him and the only people that could see him were the, were the defense lawyers and the prosecutors and the judge and the jury. People sitting in the uh, back, just the regular gallery, they couldn't see what the agent looked like. And I couldn't ask the agent anything identifying. I couldn't ask him where he lived. I couldn't ask him uh, what he's done in his past. I couldn't ask him anything. Name.
0: Yeah. Uh, They they filed other motions too to try to let him wear a disguise with a hat and a fake beard and glasses and all this stuff. They wanted him to be able to just be totally unrecognizable. Um, which there's something called the confrontation clause that we talked about a lot, which is the person that's actually pointing the finger at you, putting you in jail, you have a right to see them testify in court
1: against you, basically. Yeah, but just think what the jury thought. Here the jury is is in a trial, and they're watching a witness who has a wall built around them for protection and doesn't have to give us all the normal answers and uses a fake name. The jury never even knew he used a fake name.
0: And, you know, this goes back to a lot of the stuff we talked about, the dangers of undercover law enforcement officer. This guy was still actively doing undercover work. So that was the reason for, you know, his protection and for his safety, because he does something that's very dangerous, obviously. And so they didn't want any of that to get out so that if anybody else was paying attention to this case, that they would see that he was the undercover agent that, that, you know, set
1: up our client. But national security, the safety, all that's understandable, but it made for a very difficult trial.
0: It made very difficult for a defense um, because we couldn't get into a lot of the issues and problems they had during their investigation, which happens in a lot of these big cases. The investigation, there are always some cracks in it. And as criminal defense attorneys, we get into the cracks to make sure they did it the right way. And we really weren't able to do that in a lot of areas in this case because it was a national security case. Right. And
1: we hear a lot about the FIFA court lately. Well, the FIFA court actually did the warrants in our case. And actually, they were a secret court with secret probable cause allowing the warrants, allowing the wiretaps, all that stuff. We never even saw the warrants. We never saw the application. We don't even know why they recorded our client's phone calls.
0: And we don't get everything they got from all of their investigations. So we don't get if they had a billion hours of him talking about something else that had nothing to do with you know the case to show maybe that he didn't want to do this. We only got what they turned over to us, basically, because we didn't
1: get to review all the recordings they had or all the reports that they had. Right. And now it's interesting because we're hearing a lot about the FIFA courts and what the FBI presented them for other wiretaps and other cases. And it always makes you wonder. The real point with undercover law
0: enforcement officers is it's a balancing act. They do something that's very important to society. They find criminals that would never be found but for their function. So they are an important part of society and, and law enforcement. Um, they're Protection is very important. So there has to be rules and regulations in place to protect them and try to keep them as safe as possible. But then you have to balance it with the constitutional rights of the citizens that, you know, how much can they be lied to? How much can they be pushed into doing something um, versus something that they would have done on their own without law enforcement um, inducement? So, you know, that's kind of the balancing act we have to do as criminal defense attorneys a lot of time dealing with cases with undercover law enforcement officers. But it is a really interesting area of criminal defense and what we have to deal with in these cases. So thank you for listening and uh, we'll be back next week.